we've made it. We're we're at the Deathly Hallows. It's been a marathon. It's been really, really good. I have so enjoyed going back over all of the Harry Potters and all of the memories that it brings for me from when I first watched them, first read the books. And each one has been really, really special. And we've got to give a big shout out to all the guests that we've had. But this one is just you and me. It's just us. The Harry Potters I do tend to watch back to back every Christmas. So it's only apt that this is going out on Christmas Eve, right? Yeah, I similarly also rewatch Harry Potter every Christmas. I think a lot of people do it, don't they? Because it's such a like cozy world. I always stop at about Order of the Phoenix. The last three films I've always found a bit diff- more difficult to get into. I think because they are thematically and physically darker, but also just because there's, they're quite long, aren't they? And they're quite dense. But I'm really glad that I did commit to watching them. These two films, because we're doing Deathly Hallows Part 1 and 2 together, are, present a bit of a challenge for us, don't they? Because there is no actual teaching in these films at all. So should we just end the podcast here or? <laughs> Whilst there's no actual traditional teaching with, you know, students sat behind desks and teachers at the front, I think it's important, like, after we've come through all of the other six books um, and six films, there's so much here that ties up the entire series, I think. For the first time at the in the opening scenes, we actually meet, uh, for the first and last time, Hermione's parents and she's obliviating them. I do agree with you. It's such a dark opening and you get, I, I get the chills. I feel like the emotions draining out of me and it does set the tone of what the majority of this film is like. It's interesting. We can really see here how much these characters have gone through because this whole idea of separating from your parents really is something that happens in like upper sixth form, doesn't it? That sort of, and to me, that's what these films represent are like that weird period when you've kind of finished school, you're not really sure what you're doing, you're maybe starting university and you're feeling a little bit lost and it it really does feel like that sort of transitional period that I personally found really difficult, that lack of structure, that lack of guidance. And I think a lot of kids struggle with it. The the whole point, I guess, of that opening sequence is to show that they are now very much on their own and self-reliant. And yet also because Dumbledore's given them no instruction really on what to do, they are completely clueless. And a lot of that first film, I think the first Deadly Hallows is maybe the, the slowest and the most difficult Harry Potter film to get into because it's just them fumbling around trying to work things out, which actually is very relatable, I think, um, when you are that age, you know, and you're just like, shit, like, there's no more school, there's no more exams. Like, what, what am I supposed to be doing? When you're like sort of 18, 19, you're really just figuring it out and you don't have a lot of guidance in the same way you do at school where things are very structured and it's very clear what you're supposed to be doing. Whilst they're embarking on a, on a journey, their peers are going back to school to finish the last year of school. And you, there's definitely that sense of that lost year. Whilst all three of them have consciously made that decision that they're going to do this together and that they are better together and there are more chances of succeeding together. One of the bits that I really enjoyed, I think we talked about this in maybe the Chamber of Secrets episode, but do you know how we said that we don't really get much of the kids' backstories as to what they did before secondary school when they came to Hogwarts? And there's a scene where Hermione finds out that she's inherited a copy of uh, Dumbledore's The Tales of Beedle and Bard and Ron's face just breaks out into this smile and he goes you know mom used to read that book to me Harry and Hermione just look blankly at him and he's like come on the wizard of the hopping hopping pot babbity rabbity and the cackling stump those are books that I'd actually like to read now (laughs) well Beat of the Bard 
definitely exists. So I'm pretty sure it's on my bookshelf. I don't think I've ever read it. That's another part of the book that I guess we never really get to see is all the intertextual references to like all the textbooks they get to read and stuff. That was something that really sparked my imagination when I read it. Like, oh my God, I really want to read the history of Hogwarts and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's there's lots of references that she makes throughout the books that make you feel like, oh, I know how to associate that with real life. So for example, the owls, uh, the OWLs are the equivalent of GCSEs and the NEWTs, the newts, are your equivalents of A-levels. And so you, you can make those relationships, but they don't really clearly get those across across the films, I don't think. I think that they do get glossed over a little bit. I wonder what the owls are like, because I think one of the reasons why Harry Potter has such a huge mass appeal, I mean, other than the fact that it's just fun to imagine a magic school, but whenever you get um, descriptions of the lessons, they are very interactive, fun lessons, right? I think they satisfy that wish fulfillment you have as a kid of just, you know, to have every lesson be really quote unquote fun and memorable and exciting as teachers we of course may query that and say what is the value of this and often actually when you look at the lessons you think is this you know this what is the lesson here like it's just the teacher doing some magic and then they just copy it like is this really a lesson um but if you remember i always remember in the books the only lesson that harry hates is history of magic because that's boring because you're just learning facts and stuff so it seems like the the pedagogy of hogwarts is very much like very practical uh, lots of demonstrations and I guess in that educational context um, what would a, what would their exams look like you know like are they just sitting down and writing about stuff because it doesn't seem like they're trained to know how to do that at all in their lessons they ever go to a lesson in the film anyways I can't remember from the books where it's a non-practical subject I mean in this in this film you see the teacher Madame Burbridge who is a muggle studies teacher but I can't imagine Muggle studies being a practical subject. It would have been the equivalent of, I guess, I don't know, one of the humanities. Yeah, well, we see a bit of Muggle studies in the Azkaban novel because when Hermione's got her time turner, that's one of the lessons she goes to. And they're, cause they're just like, why would you do Muggle studies? You were literally raised as a Muggle. And she's just like, oh, you know, it's just interesting to see the wizard side of things. So you're right that I guess maybe maybe because we have to remember, although the narrative is third person, we do see things through Harry's lens, don't we? And Harry, as we know from his hatred of history and magic, obviously doesn't like those kind of lessons. So maybe he, we just don't see them. We don't get them discussed. But maybe actually there's a lot of lessons going on behind the scenes where they are learning how to read, how to write, how to, you know, analyze information, et cetera, et cetera. Can we talk about Charity Burbage? Because this so the film opens with the murder of a teacher, the torture and murder of a teacher implicitly because of what she's teaching right what is jk rowling trying to say here and it clearly it becomes very overt in the films you know and is overt throughout the whole series that voldemort's clearly an analogy for hitler the death eaters of the nazis etc etc but it made me think about what what this what that does is foreground how political education is and how much governments are implicated in what children are taught so you know the first thing voldemort does or one of the first acts that he does now he's at full power is murder the person who's teaching children in the school about people different to themselves um, and so what you implicitly get from that is how important it actually is for that to be in schools. So the suggestion is, you know, in a fascist regime or in a right wing regime, you have to be concerned when there is over governmental interference in what kids are learning about the world. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I mean, Voldemort's hatred for muggles come, stems from his mother, doesn't it? Um, and essentially, he's just another villain who's got mummy issues. 
um, but he generalizes what his mother's characteristics and traits and heritage is to to an entire group of people to hate them and to ostracize and and punish them um and essentially the fact that this teacher is then going away teaching about muggles he doesn't like it he doesn't want anyone to to like muggles or empathize with them or see them as equal human beings um and so he he sets about trying to destroy and getting rid of any any kind of opportunity to do that with within the wizarding community yeah and i suppose what that forces us to see and to think about i suppose is the you know the the next act after muggle studies is presumably taken out of the hogwarts curriculum is the the building of statues so we have that statue in the ministry of magic that is i remember really vividly the description of that in the book of the kind of magical class at the top and the elves and the centaurs at the bottom and then the muggles like being crushed beneath them like a very clear sense of a a a kind of really a sort of racialized hierarchy um and so again you can see that schools are just as much an ideological kind of apparatus as statues or as propaganda they are in fact a mouthpiece of propaganda which i think forces to think what in our schools is essentially governmental propaganda because i know i think we have talked about some previous episodes history for example in our schools is a very contentious subject what history is being taught what history isn't being taught we do a very bad job in this country i think of for example teaching about empire and what empire actually was what the consequence of empire actually was which is why um black british people generally tend to very rarely go into history as a subject of higher education because it's just they don't see it as a subject for them it is in fact a subject in which they only ever see themselves reflected as slaves for the most part in our curriculums so i think it's interesting that in a book in which you know we do have hogwarts as this like fantastical space that's like somewhere but in year 11 you just really want to go to and it seems so fun that even in that embedded in it there's a recognition of like how actually education is, is quite a serious political business I do think it's so interesting that that is something Voldemort very specifically focuses on as part of his regime. Before he starts trying to take over the world or before he starts trying to take over the country even, he goes for Hogwarts and he goes for the subject that he wants to remove because he knows that's going to help him kind of embed the ideology that he wants people to follow. Should we talk about when they are back in the ministry and they've taken uh, Polyjuice Potion, so they're three employees at the at the ministry and they find themselves in front of Umbridge. That boiling up hatred, that feeling when you see someone for the first time in years, and no matter how long it's been, you still hate them. I just love that scene, because Harry can't contain himself, can he? Yeah, and that's. I think. I guess it also shows how scarring certain teachers can be. Like, I feel like almost everyone could probably think of uh, maybe a moment in their education or a person in their education who just. I think the core of it is uh, is shame and embarrassment. Usually, you know. So, in I mean, Umbridge obviously is is evil, but you know the fact that she would often. Uh, negate what Harry would say in his lessons that she forced him to write in his own blood and stuff that trauma never really goes away right she'll always be a really dark figure in his life now do you have an umbridge in your past Shane I have had the opportunity to confront the teacher who continuously used to tell me that I was good for nothing and it wasn't until I'd not only done my teacher training and become an NQT it was at the end of my NQT year and I got my first set of results 
I made a point of getting in contact with this teacher to say I didn't amount to nothing and actually I teach your subject she she simply messaged back saying well done all that nagging paid off obviously I wonder as well I, I can almost guarantee that she didn't realize she had such a negative impact on you and it's one of the things that I think about a lot you know we we see so many kids and sometimes we might lose our patience or you know I definitely have a have a failing of losing my temper sometimes and getting frustrated with kids and saying things that you know I probably shouldn't um and I always try and think of this thing that I read in a book recently uh, it's called why behavior changes I can't remember who wrote it but he says that you should imagine at all times that a child's parent is there and speak to them as if their parents there and if you wouldn't say it in front of their parent don't speak to them that way um but I think you know we forget that kids are actually incredibly impressionable and the smallest thing something that can really actually damage somebody i mean umbridge's case you know she's a pretty egregious example because she literally tortures him but it, i guess that I, I wonder it's quite frustrating that you only got a well done i wonder if she was shocked or if she you know hadn't even really thought or remembered that she had made you feel so awful when you were a child who knows and to be honest i think i got closure once i'd sent that message and i, I don't think i would have cared for a reply she did reply but you can see that Harry and Umbridge didn't have closure and Umbridge was clearly not in a position to make things right with Harry either. We do see another potentially traumatising teacher, Snape, who once Dumbledore has died, becomes the new headmaster. And this flies up quite a lot of interesting questions, I think, because one of the things that I wondered about while watching these films was, what are all the other staff at Hogwarts thinking? You know, Snape clearly runs a very different kind of Hogwarts they know that the Muggle Studies teacher has at the very least disappeared if they don't know she's murdered. I can't quite remember if that becomes publicised. Because we see Flitwick still there, we see McGonagall still there. How are they getting on with their day-to-day -day work? You know, are they supporting potentially what Voldemort is doing on the surface? Like, are they going along with Muggle Studies being removed? How are they surviving? I do wonder, because it is an open question really, isn't it? It's in the second part that we go back to the school, isn't it? We, we don't go to the school at all in the first part. You see the students marching through the corridors. When he's addressing the students, you can see that the staff have clearly got an opinion of what he's saying. There's there's definitely anguish, anxiety, disapproval. They don't look like they're in agreement of what he's saying. So he's basically saying to them, Harry Potter's due to turn up at the castle. And if anybody's seen to be, you know, hiding him, then there's going to be consequences. McGonagall's face, she's not happy about it. Harry's in the crowd, isn't he? Harry's in with the kids. And then he shows himself. And the first thing that McGonagall does is she stands in front of him right and she's she's basically saying to Snape do what you will to me but you are not having this boy yeah and of course we know McGonagall would never ever ever go along with the Death Eaters Voldemort or whatever Snape's doing but I suppose it just makes me think because we know obviously that they are on you know Team Dumbledore Team Harry I wonder about that year that we or that period of time we don't get to see because we're not in the school you know how were they getting on with their day-to-day -day jobs you know like how were they were they trying to openly resist Snape's regime or were they just kind of under the radar just getting on with things because it does flag up you know this happens a lot in schools doesn't it you have a new head of teacher perhaps you go into special measures or there's some big you know top-down reform from the government and you've got I guess make a decision as a teacher like do I go along with this do I toe the line or do I resist and say no this isn't right so I just I wonder about that you know how vocal they were able to be because they know presumably that you know if you resist their regime as with poor you know Professor Burbage you're going to get murdered. McGonagall has changed though because throughout most of the films you see her being very firm 
but very fair. And she does this thing at the end of the scene where one of Slytherin says, you know, what are you waiting for? Hand him over. And then rather than punishing that girl, she actually gets them all like banished into the into the dungeons, all of Slytherin house. I mean, there could have been really good, nice Slytherin kids in that in that house. And yet they now have to sit in the dungeons and wait out the entire fight scene. I mean, we don't even find out if they ever get released. Yeah, this is the one moment where in the in the whole franchise where I firmly am not on Professor McGonagall's side. And I guess we have to wrestle with this decision that she makes because it's so wrong. And what it if you think about, you know, Harry Potter is very clearly supposed to be a World War II analogy. You've got uh, the Minister for Magic is very clearly Neville Chamberlain, you know, appeasement, let's pretend Hitler's not happening in Germany. Voldemort's very clearly Hitler, et cetera, et cetera. But this moment actually is to me an analogy for when the Americans interned all the Japanese during World War II, you know, so because they were all with Japan, they put all of the Japanese Americans in prison camps, essentially. And that's what McGonagall does here. She's actually making quite a fascist decision here to punish an entire group of people who, who supposedly can't be trusted. And it is such a shame, really, if you think about it, because you're right, Slytherin are supposed to be the house of ambition. And yes, we're told that all the Death Eaters came from there. But, you know, they're clearly an important facet of Hogwarts and, you know, have some of the key members of staff there, uh, you know, they, they, there's a recognition that these are also important and need to be educated. And yet the first sign of trouble is, well, lock all the Slytherin away, which is uh, absolutely discrimination, you know? So I wonder if the if the point here that we can tease out is that fascism corrupts everyone. It corrupts the people who follow it, but it also corrupts the people who oppose it. And if you give into the logic of fascism, then you would treat people this way. You would decide, actually, just as Voldemort treats muggles, we're going to treat Slytherins that way as a kind of revenge almost. So it's quite a dark moment, isn't it? Because... What it suggests is there's no alternative. You either have the Snape Voldemort regime where you are going to literally murder those who you feel are beneath you. Uh, but then the resistance side, the supposedly good side, are also treating Slytherins really, really poorly. I will say I do, apart from that moment, I absolutely love that whole sequence where Snape gets kicked out and McGonagall takes over again. And then I love the whole part where she gets to do the spell where the castle comes to life and defends the pupils and she's like i've always wanted to do that i absolutely love that part so we talk about snape's death i vividly remember the the shock of the ending of harper the prince and him killing dumbledore and it was a huge thing all over the internet um, where people were copy pasting snape kills dumbledore in like message boards and everyone was trying to avoid the spoiler people were shouting it in queues at the midnight launches and it was such maybe the most shocking moment in the whole series but reading Harper Prince, I, I remember thinking, I don't believe this. I don't believe he's really turned. Um, did you believe it? Did you believe that he truly was a Death Eater? In the books, I was really, really torn. And I guess this is the risk that you run when you read the book and then you watch a film because you obviously know the outcome of where the film's going to go and vice versa. So either way, one's going to ruin the other. I think watching the film... Alan Rickman does such, and I know I've said this over again about Alan Rickman, but he does such a good job of having his face and his body language do something completely opposing to what's coming out of his mouth. And you really got the sense that he was coerced into doing a lot of the things. But when he was interacting with Voldemort, he, I don't know, he came across really evil, like, this is where their boy's going to be at. This is where they're going to take him. You need to act on this, this, this. 
And so I guess his actions spoke that he had turned. Did I want to believe it when I was younger, when I read the books? I guess, given how horrible he'd been to Harry throughout the entire of the previous six books, and the fact that he'd killed Dumbledore, and not knowing why he'd killed Dumbledore, more of me thought that he'd turned than if he was good. But there were so many unanswered questions. And I think that's where, when he goes to the pensive and is taken um, Snape's memories, so many questions get answered right from, you know, why why was he so interested in, in Harry from the beginning right through to, you know, what the Doe Patronus, where the Doe Patronus came from. Out of all the deaths that had happened throughout the seven books, Snape's death and the, the scene with the pensive was the saddest. Yeah, you're right. It is incredibly sad because it's his final moment, isn't it? And the idea that in his final moment, he really just wants Harry to understand why he's done what he's done is really poignant, given, as you said, they've had a really contentious relationship where Snape's been absolutely awful to him. Although I'm always mindful of this, less so with the films again, but certainly with the books, that you're very much getting Harry's perspective of Snape, which is quite cartoonish, isn't it? And he seems almost unbelievably rude and horrible, which we can presume is probably happening. Uh, but it's only really here that we really get to understand who he is. So what I absolutely loved about that sequence where uh, McGonagall releases the protectors of Hogwarts is you have this image of her and Flitwick and the other members of staff at Hogwarts uh, crafting this shield over the school. And I love that as an image of safeguarding and that the duty of teachers is to protect the students that they are responsible for in loco parentis. But I also love that you don't just see teachers doing that. You see Molly Weasley contributing to it as well. And that image of like parents and teachers working together to protect children, I think, is a really, really powerful one. It reminded me of the day that you get the Ofsted call and the evening where every single member of staff will do what they need to do so that the next couple of days will be a good reflection or an outstanding reflection on their school. It reminded me of everyone pulling together and everyone doing their part. And like you said, including parents and governors, doing something in their own way to be able to protect their schooling community. Yeah, and I think, you know, as teachers, we can be a little bit myopic and we forget that, you know, schools run because of a whole host of other people who aren't teachers who without whom the school couldn't survive from like the graphics person to the reception staff to the HR team to the governors. Um, and if you think about it, like, the, the probably the most important contact Harry has at school in terms of adults. It isn't Dumbledore, it's not McGonagall, it's Hagrid, you know, it's the person who, although he is briefly a disaster teacher, the person whose role is just caretaker, you know, and that those adults are actually just as if not more important than than the teaching staff. We have to have to talk about with Deathly Hallows before we finish our conversation is the infamous epilogue how do you feel about the epilogue? Because I think it might be the most controversial part of the entire series. I I thought it was absolutely rubbish. It didn't need to be in there. It was unnecessary. It ruins anything that you may have been... I, th- I think it should have just finished at the place where they are just walking through the ruins of the grounds. By going that far into the future, it it just felt tacky. 
I am so glad we're in agreement because I hated that moment on site. I think it is so cheesy. And I think it ties into J.K. Rowling's biggest weakness as a writer is that she is a little bit of a control freak. And I feel like this is her trying to say, this is the definitive ending. Harry's an aura. He gets with Ginny. He never gets with Hermione. So don't even try that. And I think it's just her way of like controlling the narrative rather than allowing fans to decide like and imagine what happens in the future. And I think you're 100% right. It should have just ended with Voldemort being defeated and allow us as readers to just imagine what might happen as a result. Should we rate the school? I think requires improvement would be an understatement. Definitely special measures. Definitely special measures. It just, it really does interest me. Like what does the day-to-day look like in Snape's Hogwarts? Like what are they actually being taught here? Or is it all just Voldemort propaganda day in, day out? I'd be really interested to, and let's not forget, actually, you know, we know that Snape is a fan really of capital punishment because the amount of times he's smacking Harry's heads in the film or knocking a book off a kid that, you know, isn't paying attention. It's actually not really that surprising even if he is undercover, that he's absolutely fine with violence being, you know, dealt out to students. So just based on that, I think we can definitely say that Hogwarts needs to close immediately. It's a serious safeguarding risk that none of the kids there are, are, you know, the kids there are in danger, essentially. So special measures need some intervention, hopefully with a change in headmaster. Good opportunity to restructure some of the behaviour policies, maybe the curriculum and... uh, have an over, overhaul on how the schools run, yeah? Yes, yeah, so let's hope then in our head, McGonagall is headmistress. Muggle Studies has been reinstated because it's very important for the, the kids at Hogwarts to learn about the majority of the country that they live in who do not have their advantages and how they live. I know we both said that we hated the epilogue and uh, that it had no place in the film, but maybe it ties up this episode really well. And it tells us that the school has resumed some order because Harry, Hermione and Ron and Ginny are sending their kids back to a place where for seven years, at the end of every single year, they nearly died. (laughs) I'm so interested in thinking about the fact that it's implied that there is one magic school in the whole of the country, which means that a hundred kids out of the millions of kids in this country get to go to Hogwarts. There must be other options. And I, I would really, I like to just imagine, I'm going to write that story, I think, of a comprehensive that has no money version of Hogwarts, you know, and that they actually are all like, ugh, look at some Hogwarts, it's just snobs. Because I bet there are other options. That then concludes not only our kind of Harry Potter miniseries, but season one of Film Class. Have you enjoyed yourself? I had an absolute ball. We talk about films, we talk about life, we talk about all of these things in our everyday settings and it's been nice to share those with our listeners and we know that some of you have been listening every single week and some of your comments and your dms have been amazing so yeah it's been nice to to share all of that with with other people other than you sean i've enjoyed myself we've had some laughs we've gone down memory lane more times than i care to (laughs) admit but no it's been it's been really really good i can't wait for season two Me neither. So we will see you again in 2021, hopefully for season two. So keep sending us suggestions of films you'd like us to cover. Keep leaving us feedback. Make sure you've subscribed or followed to us on your podcasting platform of choice. And we will see you next year. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. 
Thank you for listening to us today. Follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at Film Class Pod and also on Instagram on the same handle. Also, you can send us an email at filmclasspod at gmail.com. Send us over any comments, any suggestions. Thank you so much as well to Kevin McLeod for our music, Night in Venice. You can find all of Kevin's work in competech.filmmusic.io and the license is at Creative Commons. See you next week. See ya.